Project Civic Space. The Busan Partnership clearly identified civil society organizations as independent actors. They must be recognized by their own governments in terms of the roles which they play in complementing the efforts of government to alleviate poverty, to hold the government to account, and to empower citizens. When we look at most African countries, their civic space ratings largely fall within the category of being repressed, narrow, closed. There are very few African countries that are progressive in terms of providing an enabling environment for civic, for civil society organizations. As we speak, African governments are at war with civil society organizations within their home countries for simply choosing to stand and to be independent and defend rights which are guaranteed even by national constitutions. When I look at some of the countries within Southern Africa and beyond, a lot of student activism is currently under threat by repressive governments that are seeking to silence the voices of young people that are raising critical questions, that are, coming, that are beginning to organize through social movements, through loose groups, to ask critical questions and to begin to build a critical mass that can even begin to defend and stand for things like social and economic rights. We're also living in countries where, because of COVID-19 and beyond, there's been a rise in militarization and authoritarianism within most African countries. It has become a public norm to see the military, the police, in public life, harassing and violating rights. And this has shrunk civic space to its worst levels on the continent. Citizens cannot seek redress. Citizens cannot even exercise fundamental freedoms like political rights and civic rights. More importantly, freedoms to assembly have been threatened by COVID-19. Gatherings are banned in most countries. It means that citizens cannot demonstrate, they cannot picket, they cannot exercise that right to show and to communicate their dissent to their own governments. And in some African countries, elections have been suspended on account of COVID-19, which on its own is a threat to democracy because elections provide for a bedrock to elections. These are very worrying and concerning trends when you look at Africa in terms of civic space. Lastly, there is this issue or this relationship between aid and how governments are repressive. Most of the aid that our governments are given is tied to conditionalities that allow for the broadening of civic space. But in those countries where more money is coming, we are seeing more repression. What is happening? 
Why are we silent? Why are we quiet? Why are we allowing ourselves to suffer when at some point all our countries were liberated for the benefit of us all to enjoy such rights that are enshrined and guaranteed for all? You actually uh, like bring in a lot of things. It's a lot of things, and there are a lot of pressing pressing issues that are currently going on. And one of them that I really uh, am concerned about that you brought up is the issue of COVID nineteen and how it has further led to the repression of the civic space, uh, particularly citing issues of. Um, gatherings being uh, banned and actually the moving around um, because access to spaces, access to cities is how civil society thrives and when that access to spaces has been repressed it means that the ways in which the civil society can complement the works of the government is also being repressed which means that every other um, work that needs to be done around having people express their freedoms is also kind of left to the government. So, which is on its own repressing a lot of freedoms. So I think something needs to be done to try and open up spaces again. Because I remember in Zimbabwe, um, after the first, after the initial lockdowns that, that, that happened, um, industries were being opened one after the other um, as the situation was getting better there was a moment where only essential services were allowed to operate. Um, a, few, a few months later, we'd find out some businesses were allowed to operate, but there was never a point where they actually said, now the civil society can operate. But um, there, there, there were instances where they would say, no, those who want to provide food aid can go on and, and do this. But civil society was never mentioned in any of the statutory instruments saying that you can now operate. So that's something that needs to be looked at. So it might actually really be further uh, suppressing the civil society and civic freedoms moving forward. And it's something that we have not looked at yet, something that's really under legislation of the different African countries that we have. Uh, speaking of uh, legislation and the three arms of government, okay. uh, most of uh, uh, national assemblies and uh, uh, who represent the people were also locked down, but we have seen them devising ways of uh, you know, coming up with laws, including the COVID laws, uh, they always uh, uh, come and, uh, you know, they meet in the assembly or even uh, meet virtually. We have also devised uh, uh, ways as civil society uh, organizations to meet virtually, but this has also come with different challenges. Again, the people's voice and how the civil society can advocate when it comes to policy advocacy, where some of these policies need to go to the floor of parliament to find that uh, we have not uh, gotten uh, you know, a way to the parliament. The budgets are being read, for instance, in East Africa, I think, uh, in the course of uh, next week. And you find that the voice of the civil society is not, will not be felt there, because there have been no platforms apart from a few uh, 
virtual uh, platforms that uh, you know uh, were presented for the submission of uh, you know feedback <coughs> to the to the budget or to what the budget contains. But how then can you be sure that some of these issues which were raised by the civic uh, civil societies, whether they are going to be taken on board? We have many other challenges which are silent and especially which have been escalated by the by, by, by the COVID situation. For instance, in Kenya, there have been uh, the question of the Public Benefits Organization Act, PBO Act, famously known as PBO Act. The conversation around that act is nowhere. Nobody knows. The civil society have tried to follow up with that conversation, which in it has been frustrating the operations of the, civ of, of, of the civil societies, but nobody knows where it is. Uh, look at in the youth sector. Regionally, there was a conversation which was going on about the, the East African Youth Council bill. It stalled because I, do, uh, I think it fizzled somewhere and nobody's speaking about the East African Youth Council today. And these are some of the frustrations that uh, you know, the youth have gotten when they, they, they want to engage regionally. They, there, are no, uh, <laughs> there are no frameworks, there are no legislation frameworks. All that was de developing and were to be put to the floor of, of, of parliaments have you know, stalled. There are many other issues, including, uh, including the lockdown of uh, civil society organizations, uh, operations, as we have mentioned. And you have talked about essential, essential uh, uh, service providers. Most of civil society work, you know, those who are in service, have never been recognized as essential uh, service providers. For those who are, you know, working with the, with the child rights, for instance, if there are violations, they, they are not allowed to move at night because there are lockdowns, there are curfews, and all these are, as I mentioned, to the detriment of, the, of human rights. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of issues which have been a threat to democracy, and also uh, the whole thing whereby you find that, uh, you know, just not wearing a mask, someone was shot, or there have been cases of uh, people being shot just because they're not wearing masks, people being uh, arrested, and you know their rights violated, just because they are not wearing masks, just because they are found out during the curfew. There are a lot of stories out here. When you go, you will be told, I, I was just a minute late. I was just found a minute outside by the, the police and I was clobbered. I was, you know, uh, uh, humiliated. All that, then the laws that also have come with the, with the COVID control measures, you find that uh, if you don't have a mask, there is a fine of uh, over 20,000, say, in Kenya. So those are some of the uh, draconian measures that have been put by the government, which actually go against human rights, and there are no spaces uh, for, 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 for people to, you know, complain or raise their issues. The judiciary today in most of African countries have lost their meaning because the, the judiciary and the parliament or the legislature are the voices to some extent. They defend the human rights, they defend, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the voices of the, the ordinary citizens. But at the end of the day, we find that uh, the judiciary has been uh, suppressed of its powers and say the, uh, uh, the executive is uh, moving on with what they want. So at the end of the day, we have to look at these many other issues 
which are going on, and it is a threat to constitutionalism in most of African countries. As we have heard that there are conversations now of postponement of elections, and you know one aspect of democracy is the periodic elections. If some governments now are, are, are now claiming, or if some political leaders are now, are now postponing elections, this means most of African countries are going to follow suit and there will be no democracy and the civic space will be closed. Thank you. I mean, um, I would like to pick it up from what my comrade has said. Um, if in some countries they're postponing elections, then what happens, like you said, is that the judiciary is, you know, it's a threat because they don't have power in that particular, you know. I mean, this is a president who is supposed to go for elections and yet he has power to postpone elections, you know. So, again, I totally concur that the constitutional, the constitution in those particular countries is definitely under threat. And I would like to pick it from um, this issue of COVID-19 and especially the funding that many African countries have enjoyed from our neighboring continents. And you find that there are no, or it's not in the public purview, you know, how this money is supposed to be used. So you find that many um, people within the, the civil society organizations would want to ask government, or rather like my colleague said, uh, in the, one of the sun laws meaning to bring government into account, they would want to, to find out or they would want government to state that this is how you're going to spend money right out to the public. But they do not want to. Why? Because maybe they, they want to steal the money or maybe they want to enrich themselves. So I believe in, in many cases that's where the fight begins between the government and the civil society organization. We want them to be accountable of every single coin, either pay, paid taxes or loans they have taken, or even in form of grants given by our neighboring countries. But even said so, the civil society organizations, probably we need to restructure and find ways, better ways in which we can try and hold government accountable. Maybe we can try to get into digital digital space. Um, I'm not quite sure. In my country, for instance, uh, dig digital space is more or less like a huge platform for freedom of speech. So maybe it can be an addition to the different ways in which we can try to hold government accountable on the money that is being used, either given by grants or taxpayers' money, so that then each and every single person can be able to benefit from it. The other aspect will be empowering citizens, and especially with information. What lacks is information. Government knows that citizens do not have information. Civil society organization knows this information. They try to empower citizens with this particular information. Then government feels a threat because they do not want, you know, citizen to know this information. More or less maybe because so that they can be able to, you know, use them or something. I don't know. But then I think we need to 
strive and work very hard in trying to empower citizens with as much information as possible. Uh, when it comes to assembling of spaces, like I said, I know many people, it was all less like a frenzy when this thing hit. And many people try to figure out or find ways in which they can be able to come together and talk and, you know, check up on each other and to give rise to many, many problems. And especially with young people, of which we know that most young people lost their jobs. They started, you know, coming up with side hustles. Most of the side hustles would go up to 10 p.m. Unfortunately, some of the cafes would start at 7 or 8 p.m., which is difficult for many people to try to bring food on the table. But the thing is, when you start having such kind of conversations, you find two groups of people. One of them is on the side of government and is inside of government because of simply psychophancy. They just want to be seen as supporting government. Okay, and on the other side, it's an understanding that you know what, yes, there's COVID, but these people need to put food on their table. So how then do we help in pushing the, some of these agendas and trying to hold government accountable on so many things? I think one of the platforms that probably we, we should take into consideration amongst other ways in which you can do that is use of digital space because it's out there it's freedom of speech i know it brings the issues of whereby in some countries where the freedom of speech is threatened you can barely say anything but the good thing is it's one of machineries that is really working in many other countries maybe we can figure out ways in which we can try and make it work I have a quick one on that one. Yes. Um, Zimbabwe recently is in the process of developing a cyber security and data protection bill that will restrict a lot of communication online. Um, have you faced something of a similar nature in Kenya? Not really. Kenya's mm -hmm. just, yeah, the agreements is on Twitter. It's uh, depressing yet wonderful. Okay. But again, there's a cybercrime bill. Yes, and you well. are also likely to be tracked in some instances. Yes. I may not give you uh, concrete, uh, specific situations, but that is exactly what happens, that you are also tracked. Actually, it, was, uh, it has become an act of parliament, a cybercrime act. At least you, you are lucky you have those bills when you're still having the internet for us in Uganda. The internet is shut down, especially when some yeah, people feel that their power is being threatened. Yeah, that's my challenge. We keep saying organizing the digital space. I've constantly thought about it practically, and I'm challenged. Because the lawmakers are not on the digital space. So yes, I'll make noise, but that will not be the effective way. I need to dialogue. Where will we dialogue effectively? Maybe, okay, maybe the digital space will be used when you're trying to reach out to the many citizens when you're trying to tell them, for instance, like the Cybercrime Act, this is what will happen, this is the details that are in it, you know, so that then you get to understand the information. And I think in Kenya, what you've realized, if something happens on Twitter, somebody will take a screenshot, it follows to as many WhatsApp groups as possible. It's forwarded. A lot of people get, you know, a lot of information. What I'm trying to see is where is the thin line? 
Because I think the theme line would be the conversation that you're having or you're trying to communicate to people. These are the points that you need to note in this particular act. Will you be tracked because of that? Because you're giving information to people. Whereas on the back end, you're doing, you know, responsibilities of you as a, you know, uh, as uh, somebody within the civil society organization then who would try to ensure that public participation is done and uh, people, you know, like try to engage and ensure that young people are involved in that and freedom of speech is, um, is not violated. But that's within one part of, of Africa. So what can we be able to do with the other part of Africa where that all that is actually challenging? In fact, it's, it's null and void. Coming up with it is simply okay. I think <laughs> not even the rest of Africa. I think even in Kenya we have the rural areas where we do not have reach of young people. Not everyone has access to the internet. Not everyone is on Twitter. Um, although we do have a high population of younger people, um, that's still a challenge that we need to see how governments can incorporate technology into the reach of areas that don't have it. Um, just to speak on some of the issues that are concerning um, us in a youthful space, in a civ uh, civic space, having to come up with innovative ways to cater to the needs of our constituents within this global pandemic. So be it um, economic empowerment, be it um, policy formulation and, um, you know, civic education. Uh, like she had said earlier, how um, mobilizing young people to understand the certain, the certain acts, the certain laws, and now because of COVID, we're not able to convene. Um, so that also is a threat to our, um, threat to democracy, because we now, we have in Kenya, we have been having um, the Building Bridges Initiative so this is a conversation around um, the, the referendum and um, either keeping a constitution or changing it. And um, being in a youthful space, it is our job to educate young people on what it is for. But we have conflict because if you go out into the um, communities, if you're for it, you're for this political, you're for this political party, if you're not for it, you know, so it's a challenge. Um, it's, it's a big challenge for us. And then also, again, the technology, it's not, not reaching, not reaching, not reaching. So how are we able to uh, create impact and people actually take this information and uh, be a part of the democratic processes, take part in um, civic spaces, take part in policy formulation, take an interest in, you know, um, reading these bills and creating um, memorandums. Yeah. Take away from that is how are we able to reach out to young people in the rural areas, which actually they are not, because mm. they tend to model things within people who are within the probably the town setup, because you can be able to reach them on a phone call. But then you realize that those in the rural areas are actually very, very active. Mm. But we don't somehow, I mean, we cannot be able to reach out to them somehow. 
and uh, something that I had, uh, <laughs> I had uh, uh, forgotten to mention. You know, there are, the COVID situation happens at the backdrop of uh, many African countries having uh, moved towards East and uh, having high appetite for loans. The public debt today in most African countries has gone high. And at the same time, you know, the process of getting these loans, when we talk about public participation, when we talk about the role of civil society, you find that there has been no, you know, clear engagement or with the, with, with the masses, with the taxpayers who will be servicing these laws. Uh, it is a big burden with most of our countries. It is a challenge and there is no space that exists for us to, uh, to, 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 to comment on this or to raise uh, our, our concerns. The COVID also has come with scandals. We have had COVID millionaire scandal in Kenya, COVID millionaire scandal in Kenya. And uh, you find that nobody has been, you know, the civil society has never found time or has no space, including the judiciary, where you, when you take there your, your, your issues, uh, the judiciary is to some extent gagged. So there are scandals which have come as a result of this COVID because of the, uh, are they called PPEs? Yeah. So a lot, a lot is happening uh, just because the countries are in lockdown and in curfews and are also being locked down, the civil societies have been locked down not to raise their voices and concerns over these scandals. Maybe just to build up on what you've just mentioned, um, the COVID pandemic has exposed how authoritarian most of our states are. Because if you look at some of the orders, I want to call them orders because they were not by, they were not laws, orders that were made by our leaders, right? They were not backed by any legal instrument there is. Uh -huh. Absolutely no legislation over the, the directives that they took. Absolutely no consultation with the masses. Uh -huh. okay? So, for example, in my country, our president just announced that he's going to speak to the nation. And when he spoke, he instructed the whole country to shut down. Uh -huh. And remember, we had people who, were, who had medical emergencies, we had people who were moving... Uh, to different parts of the country and all these inconveniences that came around and all that was backed by a huge violation of human rights. The military forces were, were clobbering people like those no tomorrow. And to us, we, we were thinking, well, if there is going to be a directive that technically is not backed by any law there is of the land, at least let there be some decency, let there okay. be some, some, some sense of dignity for the people. Tell people that in the next 48 hours, a BCD, so that people can move, people can transact, and people can prepare themselves. So that exposed us a lot because in that fracas, we actually lost more people to military and police brutality than to COVID at that material time. But also, like you mentioned about the scandals that have followed suit with, um, with the COVID-19, there has been a huge question of accountability. Most of the, our governments have gotten huge loans that we're going to be servicing in the next 10, 15, or 20 years. But there has not been one, there has not been accountability to the public. 
Secondly, there has not been visible services to us, the Wanainchi, the, the people. And that raises a lot of question about the, the, the Busan principles that I mentioned, the, uh, the, the, the aspect of the accountability to the masses. Mm -hmm. Where is this? And of course, it is the civil society that is known mostly for making noise around these things. But yes, they've been clamped down. Activists have been shut down. And there's been a lot of things going on. Unfortunately, in my country, when there was elections during the pandemic, it was visible to the whole world that the opponents of the king himself were barred from having processions, right? They're barred from having campaigns and they were barred from making anything that was public yet the other part, the other, the other group were, were doing the same thing. So we were thinking, well, this is not a level ground. If we're going to comp if there's going to be any competition or any ele uh, elections in a fair and democratic dispensation, there's got to be a, a grounded, a ground, a ground, a leveled ground for this to happen. And this is still raising a lot of questions about are we really in a democratic dispensation or are we in an authoritarian state of governance that is face masked with this beautiful girl called democracy, right? Yes. So, and also um, adding to that, post the elections, right? We're having very many young people that participated in the process of elections, right? Along through different modes, but they've been picked up from their houses. Even today, as I speak, young people in my country have been picked up. And not just in my country, even in my community, in my neighborhood, three houses down the block, we've had young people picked up by security forces that do not identify themselves, that move in cars that are called drones without number plates, and when they go, they never come back. We don't know. Myself, I am worried because I was making a lot of noise about some of the one political movement in my country. And of course, that comes at the other people's conditions, right? For example, in my country, we received the first batch of the AstraZeneca vaccine that has not served even 2% of the population. But since we have imported them from India, when the second wave, the new variant, hit India, they closed the tap and they were like, you know, you know what? we're not going to give you another batch of the vaccine. So that has already exposed us that, well, can we as African people in, in, um, develop the capabilities of our young scientists to, to build these vaccines? Because we have the mineral resources. We have the potential in the young people. We can manufacture our own vaccines. And we don't have to be on our knees to wait for the, for the other people across the globe to come to our rescue like it was before. Because in the new Africa, I believe it is more about partnerships than dependency. We are talking about collaborations instead of begging and things of that sort. So I'm so sorry if I'm dwelling so much on COVID, but for me, I think it's very imperative because just a few hours ago, I was even, I was tested for COVID because I have a pending travel. But even when you look at the dynamics that is surrounding the traveling, the testing, and then when I reach back home, I have to test again, meaning that the, the test that I'm coming with from Kenya is not valid, right? And that is already a technical error because why would you test me twice in the space of 17 hours? That means that we have to integrate our systems, right? Integrate our systems so that across across board, so that one, we can limit on costs and also we can improve on the efficiency of some of these, these um, the processes also. There was a huge monster that nobody is talking about that came along with COVID in most of our communities, especially young people. 
our livelihoods were hampered by the mental breakdown that came with COVID. Most people were locked down in their houses. They couldn't go to work. They had nothing to eat. Their children were staring at them. Our children are staring at us and our elders that we support. And of course, this has a huge psychological toll that it takes on us as young people. And like in most of our communities, the issue of mental health is not taken serious. When you start acting funny, they say, well, those are spirits from their family. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> sure. spirits yeah. are not appeased by something, right? But like uh, Mukami was saying uh, previously, that we need to have a to to have a a, a knowledge based economy that is an all encompassing system. Knowing that, well, wait, mental health is a big problem. We cannot talk about human rights. We cannot talk about just democracy. We're not about all these things independently without mentioning other aspects like mental health in young people, also the gender based violence. People are staying together. Uh, there was tensions, you know, there was a record high uh, reports on gender-based violence. And like Comrade Ben, you mentioned, most of the actors that were supposed to come and give a helping hand from especially the civil society organizations, yeah. their hands were tied. Yeah. So where do, we, where do all these victims go to? Exactly. That becomes another problem for the country. And ultimately that comes down on our uh, livelihoods as young people. And it raises very many questions for the new Africa that that want to build. I, I I feel like the issue of um, laws, legislation, it keeps coming up, and I'm just asking myself, when are we going to go back to? Well, we can't go back to the pre pre COVID era, but we need to go to maybe what we call the post COVID era, or find ways of actually getting our laws back and actually having our, our laws work for us in within the COVID era. Because if I look at it from like an African governance point of view, we have an African governance architecture. We have good charters that deal with everything that we are talking about right now. But when do we say that it's now time to go back to those charters, to go back to our constitutions and actually have them work within this era? What, what needs to be done? What does it take for us to, to get to that point where we are saying it's no longer about uh, presidents and governments just doing the commands, mm -hmm. as my brother is saying, when do we get our laws back, the rule of law back? Well, I think for me, that's a question of advocacy. Because like you mentioned, yes, the laws are there, the instruments are right there in our faces. But Mokami used the word that I like to use very much, null and void. It's only activated when it is needed. Yet, ideally, these things have to be functional. They have to be incorporated in, uh, in state functionality, in the process of nation building. So yes. Now, how for me, the, the million dollar question here is, how do we engage at the, act, at the activist point, from the activist point of view? Mm -hmm. Because yes, the laws are there, the charters are there, the instruments are there for us to, to swim in, right? But who are these stakeholders? Who do we touch? Where do we touch? What do we say? And without compromising on our position as young people. For me, I think this is the question that we have to throw out there to everybody that's going to be listening to this. Mm -hmm. To start from the grassroots, just within their communities. Could be from their, their in Uganda, it is the LC one, the local council one chairperson, the committee at the village, mm. before we go to the national level. Because many a time, 
we overlook these grassroots structures, and that is actually where the real people power is. Mm. Yeah, so that would be they understand. Exactly. Civic if they understand, if the grassroots mm. understand, if they understand what their rights are, mm. if we start with that, mm. if they are clear on what are their rights, mm. then organizing becomes easy. Mm -hmm. But the organizing is not the solution. That is in my view, in that sense. The way that we will actually progress is if we take a more multi-tier approach or more multi-engagement approach, where we have at the community level, we sit down with the different uh, leaders that are in place and really start to engage at that level, understand what it happens, what what it takes, what it will take to make a transformation at that stage. Pull up all the way up. And I'm not against organizing, but I'm, I mean, uh, going to the streets, but I'm tired of no solutions and I'm tired of complaining. I'm tired of sitting in places and constantly complaining over the same thing over and over again that I took my mind and decided to start working it out. And what, this, what I discovered is the more I document even the approaches that we've been given, the more I see how they're not working. We are being told, and we are seeing over and over across uh, not only Africans, but across the global north and south, saying it's time for digital advocacy. My friend, my friend, my in my village, they don't have internet. So are they going to start uh, having that digital advocacy work going on? They don't even have that infrastructure, or maybe they do, but they can't afford the bundle. So uh, what, what are you talking to? What are you telling me? I don't, I can't, don't even have the space. So if we're going to be, if we're actually going to be meaningful, my approach would be, let's start with the space, and that's why we're having this campaign. Let's start with the space where we're looking at what are the realities of these people? in a manner that's, that, that is actually transformational. And then now move from that place where that data actually can start to make sense. I'm a huge, huge, huge advocate for data, huge advocate for clear documentation. If my documentation is not clear, then the big zero up. I need to check my claims as advocates. So many times we are stuck in the rhetoric, yeah? And we're telling ourselves, okay, government does not engage their spaces sometimes, but maybe it, we've gotten to that point of how meaningful are they? Or we move from the point of meaningfulness. We need to graduate every step of opportunity that we have, despite it being that we need to realize our rights and we should never even have to fight for our rights. But what stage are we at? That, that's, for me, I'm uh, heavy on, let, let's work on the solutions. I, I hear digital advocacy, and I even am a key advocate, but I, I, I'm strong on the marginal. Let's look about. Let's look at those ones first. Thank you very so much. Guys, yeah, what's the aim? I'm now. Thank you very much for raising, you know, the critical question around why the campaign and trying to speak to it. Seconds. Tracing back our footprints to our liberation, 
Yes. Where then the young people of Africa fought for our freedom. And as part of that freedom which came with liberation, we're founding dictates to African states and nations such as liberty, such as equality, such as human dignity, and such as the right to life. Most of which, when you look at Africa today, they are being plundered by governments. Governments that are afraid of voices of their own people. Governments that are afraid of people coming together and co-creating and cross-pollinating ideas. Governments that see civil society as being regime change agents and not partners in development. Also at the heart of the campaign is to ensure that citizens, civil society and every non-state actor out there, they must have access to information. We must know where the taxpayers' money is going. We must know where the different money that is coming for aid and to develop our country is going. Beyond asking the critical questions, information must be made available to us. The more information we have, the less we ask. Also at the heart of the campaign is to speak to the need for enabling environment for civil society organizations. They continue to be harassed by governments across Africa. They continue to be curtailed through administrative practices of government. It is very difficult to register a civil society organization. In some countries, organizations are not even allowed to receive financing. How can you complement the government when you operate as a non-entity and you operate without the necessary resourcing and financing that is critical to the work? So through the campaign, we are pushing back, pushing back against repression. We are challenging, we are challenging the status quo that sees it right for one to be quiet and that sees it right for one when he or she speaks, they must be arrested, detained, and they can even be detained with no charge and no crime, only for the purpose of silencing them. Through the campaign, we're also coming together to stand out as Africans for what we believe in. We believe in the dictates of the African Union and the dictates of our individual constitutions. And the last thing there is to spotlight the violations. We cannot continue to ignore an innocent life that is lost because someone was defending a right, because someone was taking a chance to speak and to seek redress. One thing that we are cognizant of in the campaign is the need for cooperation between civil society and the government. And we'll always try to advocate for this as best as we can. You, sounds, you actually mentioned something very, very critical. That as Africans, we have to replicate models that were set by our predecessors 
Because if you look at the, um, the colonial Africa, it was actually the young men and women of the time that stood the, stood the test of time, organized themselves, and put up fight, a strong fight for Africa to be liberated. For us, we don't, we might not understand the full scale of this, but it takes immense sacrifice and collective consciousness. And now I think we are in a better place in terms of the use of technology, the interconnectedness of the continent. That is something that we could harness to ensure that we gain the freedom and the liberation that we so very much seek in this day and age. I'm not a pessimist. I believe this is possible. But it's a matter of, at the risk of repeating this, it's a matter of organizing ourselves, identifying our, the, the critical people to talk to, mm -hmm. not just even talking to, but even collaborating with, building that collaborative synergy among different stakeholders. And I believe this can be achieved in the shortest time possible there is. We can make Africa great again. You must uh, never have to fear. Wait. <laughs> we are coming together for justice. The African Renaissance. We are coming together. Amanda. People power. How do you say people power in Uganda? No, it's, like, it's, it's, like the chant. It's people power, our power. Mm. Our power, people, people power. power. Right. Okay, can we just do 